Hello and welcome to The Intersection, which is season two of the Racial Equity Enrichment Podcast. I'm your host, Ebony Walden, uh, urban planner and DEI consultant and creator of the Richmond Racial Equity Essays. This season, I'll be inviting guests at various intersections of racial justice and equity and different uh, sectors from around the country to talk about and specifically answer the question of what now and what next. Three years after the heightened racial awareness um, brought on by the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, and corresponding protests, I want to keep the conversation alive and specifically answering those two questions, but also at the intersection, right? So we'll be talking to people from all over the country that are at the intersection of racial equity and some other work. Um, Today, we'll be meeting at the intersection of race and place with our guests, Raymond Jetson and Sharita Harrison from Metromorphosis in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, Their mission is to transform urban communities from within. They also have a co-generational, co-leadership model, which I'm interested to dig into today. But before we get into that, thank you, Ray and Sharita, for joining me. We're going to just kick this off by um, having you introduce themselves. I could read y'all intros, but you're far better than me at reading those or helping us understand those. So I'd love for you to take two or three minutes each, introduce yourself, where are you from originally, what's the work you do in your own words, and then maybe a pivotal moment that brought you to the work that you do today. Who wants to start? Well, thank you, uh, Raymond. Hi, Ebony, um, and thank you for, for having us on. You know, I grew up in the oldest black neighborhood mm. in Houston, Texas. Um, and I grew up on the same street where um, my mom grew up and really just down the street from what was known, the little uh, apartment complexes where she they grew up, it's called Gigi Quarter. So I grew up down the street from there. And so I was surrounded by lots of cousins and, and family and friends and really just kind of the history of my family, um, not really knowing that. But uh, what I do remember is um, being able to like ride my bike to the store. It was just around the corner and like neighbors would look out for me. I remember taking public transportation all over the city. I think that that was, that's one of the reasons that I feel so independently mobile when I, mm. when I go places. Um, but, but I say all of that to say because um, I realized that that block or, or two blocks um, really shaped the person that I am today. And that has made me think about uh, my work in the sense of how are young people being shaped by their environments, by their neighborhoods. Um, And and that has uh, really kind of been where my thoughts have been in terms of this equity and access work that I think I do. And so um, I'll say one other thing about, about, uh, my past, I started this work uh, teaching adults to read um, and um, in the hopes of getting their high school equivalencies to to change their lives. And one day, um, as I'm known to do, to go through a certain drive through to get an afternoon treat. Okay. 
What's your guilty pleasure? I'm nosy. <laughs> ice cream. Ice, ice cream. cream. Ice cream. My goodness, I can't. What you know. Flavor? What but, flavor? What uh, flavor? You gotta tell me the flavor. See, I'm nosy. Cookies and cream. Oh, it's a very a woman after oh, my so. own heart. <laughs> so, so we're friends now. Okay, we're friends. Yes, yes, yes. yes. ice cream. Yeah, and so um. No worries, no worries. So I'm in the drive-through and I, I encounter one of my former students, and she is uh, one of the part, uh, the people taking my order. And I, not that there's anything wrong with her being in the drive-through, but I just remember the goals that she had mm. when she came came to our program, and she got her high school equivalency. But I often contemplate, did we actually change her life? Mm. And so when I think about both the environment and then the systems and the work that we do in this nonprofit space, um, it inspired me to really be thoughtful about what are ways that I can shift conditions so that um, people can actually live out the lives um, that they want they want to live. And so that's what I'm focused on. What does it take to thrive um, in in our communities these days? Wonderful. Quick. Two quick questions before we go to to Raymond. So how long have you been in Baton Rouge and how long have you been at Metro Morphosis? Yeah, so I, I've been in Baton Rouge 20 years. Um, I moved here um, for school and then the, I started teaching adults to read and write and fell in love with both the city and the work, the ability to, to make change and do good um, while still being able to take care and provide for myself. So um, 20 years and then, um, gosh, what has it been? Four years, five years at Metromorphosis. Um, had a, a, a nice little pivot from my work in education um, and then ended up, uh, because I was a member of one of uh, Metromorphosis' longest running strategies, the Urban Leadership Development Initiative. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah, I had the opportunity to um, connect with the organization early on and then it turned into um, this this thing that you that we're about to talk about here. All so right. about four or five years okay. with Metromorphosis. Wonderful. Thank you for obliging me. Ray, sure. tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, I begin with it's uh, uh, pistachio almond uh, for <laughs> me. Uh, Come on <laughs> now. All right. To get the important part. Uh, the important part. Uh, part uh, right. What's your way. ice cream flavor? Yes. That make no mistake about it. It is amazing that Sharita and I, hundreds of miles apart, I grew up in very similar environments. I grew up on a street where half the block was my family. Mm. I literally grew up next door to my great grandmother and great grandfather. Wow. Um, and uh, when I look at my and their pictures are in my study in my in my office uh, now. And when I think back on how I've grown up, the street that I grew up on, family all around me. I mean, I walked down the street to to the church uh, that I would later serve as the pastor of for 23 years. Uh, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather uh, impact my life in ways that I'm only realizing uh, the, the more that I age. The the seminal there were two moments for for me. One, I was doing work with a nonprofit uh, that I then governor uh, Kathleen Blanco started after Katrina, mm. focused on displaced families. Uh, I was a gubernatorial appointee, 
in our then Department of Health and Hospitals. She asked if I would leave this nonprofit. Uh, and since I was a gubernatorial appointee, I thought it was in my best interest to say yes. <laughs> uh, and so I started leading the Louisiana Family Recovery Corps, traveling all over the south, southeast, uh, focused on, on displaced New Orleanians and how do they get back home uh, in a way that allows them to thrive. Mm. And I was coming back uh, home uh, from having been in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, for three days. I came back home, went to visit my mom in the neighborhood that I grew up in, in the neighborhood that I pastored in at that point. And I drove to my mom's house and it was as if I had this epiphany that I saw my neighborhood in ways that I had not. And I thought that I was traveling all around the Southeast trying to help people get back to their community. And the one that I grew up was in great distress. Uh, and this was a community that shaped me, much like Sharita, family. Uh, I, I can remember as a child going to my barber and getting in the chair uh, and him asking me, uh, where's your report card? Mm. Uh, and don't come back here without me seeing. I want to see. I don't want to hear. I want to see your report card. And so, you know, we talk about this notion of a village. The village that I grew up in was strong. And, and it was neighborhood wide. And that just wasn't the case. Uh, shortly after that moment, I, I intended to begin to address what I saw through the construct of the church. Uh, and, and we began to do some of that. But shortly after that, I was invited to speak on a panel at Harvard uh, and walked into this room with these people who were the first cohort of the Advanced Leadership Initiative, diverse group of people from all walks of life. The one thing is that they were all older individuals in that they had done at least 25 years in something and were looking to make social impact. And I had some dear friends with me who kept saying, you need to look into this, you need to look into this. Uh, and I am forever thankful uh, for Professor Charles Ogletree, uh, who was one of the faculty sponsors. Uh, I reached out was accepted and those two years really changed how I thought about this notion of making the world different because it gave me this framework for deploying myself, for helping me understand that I didn't need anybody's approval, I didn't need to be in elective office, I didn't need a title, I didn't need a blue ribbon commission, that I, Raymond A. Jetson, could actually go out and begin to make my community better in substantial ways. And so those two moments really set me on the course that would later become metamorphosis. Wonderful. So let's get into it. In the, give me a quick insight into what is the work that you all do at metamorphosis and specifically how y'all got into this co-generational co-leadership model and why that matters for our, for our time. So I'll jump into the work and tee up the intergenerational co-leadership and, and allow Sharita to, 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 to add to the, the work and to speak more about, uh, about the model. Our work is really found in this notion of transforming inner city neighborhoods from within, transforming urban communities from within. And that is more than a tagline for us. It encapsulates 
the mindset which undergirds our work, which is that the resources that are necessary to bring thriving lives to inner city neighborhoods cannot be imported exclusively, that you must be able to understand, identify, nurture, and catalyze, mobilize uh, the assets that exist in urban communities already. And that you can't do things for people or God forbid to them, that it is about this whole notion of doing with. Uh, and, and, and so that, that is the heart of our work. Uh, we also believe that the work is bigger than any single individual organization, entity or system. Uh, and so it requires this mobilizing collectively. Uh, we talk about the importance of catalytic partnerships which are these partnerships that allow work to happen that would not happen if these partners were not assembled and activated in a collective way. And so Sharita talked about our urban leadership work. Uh, we also do work uh, with small businesses uh, because we believe that they are a critical asset uh, in, in urban communities. And we also, uh, we, we, we convene stakeholders, we design engagements, uh, we put forth best practices, uh, we insist upon, we are the keepers of the equitable processes being in place. Uh, we support the agency of community members to lift their voices, and we are serious uh, about changing the narratives and the stories that get told uh, about inner city neighborhoods and even by uh, inner city neighborhoods about themselves. And so that's our approach uh, to to the work uh, as it relates to the, to, to the intergenerational co-leadership. I will simply say uh, that as someone who was in metamorphosis at the beginning and also someone who is keenly aware of my own personal aging and the responsibility that comes with that, my father died at 54. I am 67. I have an obligation with those 13 years, and I have an obligation with every year that would come after that to give back, to create pathways for some brilliant people who are coming beside me, and even those who, who are behind me, and leaning into this notion of Sankofa uh, and making benevolent use of the past uh, to build stronger futures. And so that led us uh, to this whole notion of co-leadership amongst generations. I love that. But before we go to Sarita, I just want to say you were speaking my language. I love the go back before you, you go forward. I love the asset-based approach to community development and change. I think um, highlighting the agency from within and doing this work is absolutely important. And I, but I also love that y'all are doing narrative change because sometimes we forget about the story we tell about the, ourselves or the stories we tell about the communities that we're in um, becomes like our outward reflection. So let's tell ourselves different stories and tell different stories about our community to be future focused and future looking. So I just wanted to highlight that I loved all of that. So how did y'all get to this co-generational co-leadership model? I think you began to say some of the things about your own journey but uh, Sharita would love your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, when Raymond described our work, for us, it all of that points to 
this notion of, of social, racial, and economic equity, right? And so how do we balance um, power dynamics and how do we shift conditions that keep people out of places and spaces that just um, by the right of being born, um, they, they should have access to, right? And so as a, uh, and, and then I mentioned that I was a member of the Urban Leadership Development Initiative, um, which, which talks about not having uh, or not needing the permission to lead or not needing a title to lead, but that leadership is a practice and that people can practice leadership right where they are. And so in communities, um, you have people who are leading all the time and they are not on, you know, the local governing body. They're, you know, they're not a member of some neighborhood association or that kind of thing. And so this leadership that is just leading right where you are was was intriguing to me. It was important to me. Right. Um, and so then marrying that with my interest in what does it take for people to thrive and, and, and especially in 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 the the years uh post or or after the pandemic right when when people were were uh sent to their respective corners and and isolated in so many ways and then also confronted with these very jarring and deeply hurtful images and actions right and so people were in a space where they were were having to wrestle with concepts and thoughts that maybe they've not had to wrestle with before. And so um, being thoughtful about, so what does it look like then to thrive in those spaces? Had the privilege of, of being in another fellowship, uh, formerly Encore.org, now Co-Generate, um, in their inaugural cohort of their Gen to Gen Innovation Fellowship. Ah, so we were all a part of- We uh, were all there, uh, yeah. Of we're we're okay. family. Family on the call. Oh, yes. um, and so exploring and, and what I wanted to really explore was what does it look like when you uh, make leadership equitable, right? Because for so mm. long, leadership has been this exclusive singular practice that was reserved for people of a certain de demographic, right? And so what does it look like then when you... Um, decolonize, so to speak, leadership, right? And mm -hmm. so this intergenerational co-leadership uh, model began to form and largely in part because Raymond and I were already practicing this um, pretty organically. By the time I came to the organization, Raymond and I realized that we had complementary skill sets and similar personalities. And when we were thinking about the work of metromorphosis and how to really be impactful in communities, we found that uh, we were at our best selves when we were working together. Similarly, mm. when he described those catalytic partnerships, when um, people and organizations come together to do things that they would not have been able to do um, separate, I feel like that is what we were seeing in real time as we were leading metromorphosis. And so then taking a look at our own practice of leadership and then looking at organizations that were uh, working in these in spaces where they were really addressing some really uh, big challenges. Right. And so uh, social justice, economic uh, equity, you know, these organizations that were addressing big challenges. 
And a lot of them were already doing so in a team format. And so looking at that, um, and it just kind of got me thinking that maybe, just maybe, this is not the kind of work that you can do alone. You know, when you are very passionate about uh, communities or education or, or any of the, the, the big challenges and you are um, working toward change, um, it can take a toll on you. And so this intergenerational co-leadership model started really as a way to explore what does it take to thrive? And then it became, Raymond and I laugh because we, we're like, this This is necessary for the future of the work. Mm. Like, mm. We can't lead organizations in the same way that we've been leading organizations in the past because the world is different. Workplaces mm. have multiple generations in them. Leadership demographics, if you will, are changing like people are realizing that people of color and women can lead just as successfully, if not even more effectively um, than the men and the white men that have led before them. And so as the world is changing, as organizations are changing, as people are changing, our leadership models have to change. And so this intergenerational co-leadership model was our response to um, this changing world, this changing dynamic. Um, because at the end of the day, almost everything that we are working on as it relates to change and, and, and systems work is intergenerational, mm. right? These are issues that have that. span generations, right? Uh, Raymond and I, um, he's a, a baby boomer and I am a proud millennial. And some of the, <laughs> the, the issues that we talk about and wrestle with are issues that I know that he talked about and wrestled with when he was my age, right? right? There are things that my nieces are going to be thinking about and wrestling with, um, <clears throat> you know, when, when when they get older. And so they're inherently intergenerational. And so it just didn't seem to make sense that. to keep the conversation separate, right? To keep the generations apart. And so this intergenerational co-leadership was kind of a response to all of that. Yeah, and I love how disruptive it is, right? Disruptive to the status quo. The status quo is leadership by older white men, sort of disrupting that from a racial and a gender perspective, um, disrupting the patriarchy, so to say, but also dis disrupting the tenets of hierarchy and supremacy and saying, you can't do this by yourself. We want to look at how power is shared and pilots, right? Like, how do we share power? How do we thrive and, and entering that from a space of curiosity? Like, how is this going to work? How, but also responding to the next generation. We're, we're at a place that we've never been before, right? So I think it's five generations in the workplace now. We are, in some sense, looking at the same problems, but maybe looking at them differently. Um, and how do we respond to that? And so I love the idea of playing with what's normal and being disruptive around the status quo as a way to move towards um, the equity that we're talking about. Yeah. And so, now you're speaking Raymond's language when you say disruptive. He is absolutely a, a self-described disruptor. Not disruptor, right. That's what I always, I, so I do DEI work and I was like, whether you want to be loud or you want to be quiet, your work should be disruption but disruption 
and the goal is equity or justice or liber like I like to say my work now is liberation, but disruptive, not just for the sake of being disruptive, but for a cause, to, to break up the status quo, to do something Absolutely. different um, so we can get someplace different. And speaking of different, I would love for y'all just to take a, a second to talk about, so we've had a whole pandemic, people were home. Um, for two years, we've had a great shift in the, the workforce since then, right? Going hybrid technology. I think we have a, a, a different language around racial equity and justice work, right? You can say white supremacy and it not still kind of taboo, but not be as taboo as it was even three years ago. So our climate is different. I would love for y'all to reflect on how has y'all worked and metromorphosis changed in the past three years? And then in, in the spirit of what now, what next, where do you see it going because of that change? So what's changed for y'all um, over the past couple of years? And then where do you see the work going? So I, 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 will, I, I will start for, first by speaking of the context within which we find ourselves in. I think that there has been a really important shift uh, in the mindset uh, of, of the country that, that has emerged in the aftermath of the pandemic, in the aftermath of uh, the whole George Floyd uh, incident, in, in the sense that there is this really intentional uh, and ever increasing in its, in, in, in its boisterousness, this, this pushback against the notions of equity uh, and in inclusion. A backlash, uh, and, or a, more appropriately, a white lash. Yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, that, that, there's certainly a something back, uh, that, that is, uh, that's, in my opinion, uh, 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 uh mean spirited, uh, and, 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 and very threatened, uh, in, in, in its response. And, and I think that that is, that is absolutely critical because much of the, the, the mea culpa and openness, uh, to, 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 to truthfulness, uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd has been, uh, seriously, uh, uh threatened, lessened, uh, attacked, uh, in, in, in the current context that, that we find ourselves in. I think a pivotal point for, for Sharita and I and Metro Morphosis was during the pandemic, as the pandemic began and, be and became a very real thing that would have very tenable impact, we got to a point where we realized very early on that the wrong question to ask is, how do we shift our work to virtual platforms? How do we change our work to this? And that the, the, the appropriate question to ask is, what is our work now? The world has changed. Uh, and so we began to engage uh, with, with, with our partners, with stakeholders. We began these uh, environmental check-ins uh, with community members uh, where we would literally, we had this group of people that team members would call every other week and ask these questions that allowed us to track what was really happening in the lives of people, what concerned them, where were their gaps, uh, and how did that align with the work that we did at Metromorphosis? And so it began 
uh, this, this important shift, I believe, in how we thought about our work uh, and the necessity of truly making the work focused on this notion of thriving and thriving without us. And so how do we engage communities? How do we engage partners? How do we help mobilize people to act in ways that don't require our ongoing participation or stewardship over time? How can we incubate uh, important work and lift it up so that it lives on its own? And so one example, and, and then I'll pass it to Sharita. We've been doing some work around black boys and men that we branded the Earth and Congress on African-American Men. Well, it was rooted in this monthly work groups. We had seven goals. We had a work group for every goal. We were meeting in person uh, once a month. Uh, we'd provide dinner. Uh, I mean, it was just community space. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, but the pandemic uh, strongly suggested that it was not uh, in our best interest to try to meet on a monthly basis in a community space. Uh, and so rather than just shifting that to a virtual platform, we started these conversations, beginning with black boys and men, asking what's most meaningful at this point. And what ultimately was the result of that uh, is that we had been simultaneously doing some work with My Brother's Keeper. Where we ultimately ended up was that My Brother's Keeper with its national infrastructure, with its network, with its resources, was actually a better platform uh, to continue this work. And so we shifted to lifting up a My Brother's Keeper back route, uh, partnered with our mayor's office, engaged our local Y. And so we were able to lift up this work that now lives at our local Y uh, and that's beginning to gain traction that's beginning to be recognized nationally uh, by, by the Obama Foundation and My Brother's Keeper uh, nationally. And so that's an example of how we made a shift, not only in the work we were doing, but what was the ultimate expression of that work. And I, and I love that, um, and I think this is key to our listeners, that this work requires a different posture. And I love the posture of questioning curiosity, and then listening to respond, and then looking for partners or collaborations. Who else is existing in this space? So it doesn't necessarily have to be you. It may say you, you are, and I, and I hear y'all saying it a lot, whether it's catalyst or catalytist, you are a catalyst for that change. It doesn't have to live with you. It doesn't have to stay with you. But that questioning, the curiosity, listening, and responding to the moment and to the people sounds pivotal and important to the present and future of our work. And I just want to highlight that. Two things real quick in response to that, and then I'll get, I'll get out of the way. One, a, a wise person uh, said to me once, if you ask people what they think and you don't listen and do something based on what you hear, they will eventually stop telling you what they think. Mm. Uh, and so it's really, really important if you ask to listen and then to demonstrate that that you heard, even if it's saying thank you for sharing, we chose to go in in right. uh, in a different direction. And Sharita has mentioned on a couple of occasions uh, my absolute favorite metromorphosis strategy, the Urban Leadership Development Initiative. 
And one of the things that we talk about in ULGI is sometimes the most important question you can ask is who is the right person mm. to drive this? Yeah. Because it, it, it may not be me. And sometimes the greatest demonstration of the practice of leadership is positioning somebody else to lead. Come on now. Speaking my language again, Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> would, would love for you to chime in here, uh, Sharita. Give us your thoughts on, you know, how have things changed? How have things changed? And what are we, what are y'all looking forward to in your work as you look forward to the future? Sure. So, you know, I think it's interesting when we think about how our work changed. And it certainly did change. But at the heart of our work, has always been this thing that you lifted up and Raymond just kind of expounded on, right? It's this idea of listening to the community and in des designing with them the solutions um, to, 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 to what they bring up. And so a lot of our earlier work when, when the organization first started and certainly pre-pandemic was about taking a look at what was already there, what was already happening in the community and connecting people and organizations in ways that will allow them to do more, faster, and better, right? And so um, in the ways that our work changed, it changed in a way that allowed us to do more of that stuff, right? And so allowed us to be more intentional and focused on how do we design responsive solutions, right? And not just uh, responsive solutions as we saw it, but responsive solutions as they were told to us by those most impacted by the challenges. And so we did uh, last year a series of village chats here in Baton Rouge where we went to neighborhoods, um, five different neighborhoods in our city and asked people what would it take um, to, to have this thriving and vibrant, um, community, this thriving city. What would, would they need to see? Who would need to be involved? And, and, and so forth and so on. And then we took all that information and we shared it with our organizational partners. We shared it with those folks who are looking and, uh, to make a difference and who are working in the communities. And we said, look, here, here's what people are saying. Here's what they want. Here's what they want to see. And then we ask them, and so how can we be responsive to that um, together, right? And so not just here, Ebony, go do this and fix this, but what does it look like when we are responsive um, to the needs of our community um, together as a, a the, the, the social sector? And so in a lot of ways, our work, now, and I think in the future, is about uh, that, that community responsiveness, right? It's about us listening to the community first, but then also helping um, others uh, really engage the community in, in meaningful ways and in ways that balance the power dynamic and, and, and does not treat community members as uh, strictly beneficiaries, but also contributors, yeah. right? More community conversations, more community listening, more of grounding uh, people in the practice of, of collective impact or, or as we like to say, collective action 
So helping people understand how, um, you know, there is no single entity or organization that is going to address the challenges um, that we see, or, or should I say, address the opportunities that um, our communities are presented with. Because here's the other part uh, where you see challenges, we see opportunity, right? Mm. Um, there, there are ways and, and people in the communities know ways um, to, to make their communities thrive. And so how do we help them get connected to those organizations that also have the same same aspiration? When we think about being responsive to communities, there's a lot of that that as what I call well-meaning folks, right? Us well-meaning people who, who, who want to do good and want to help. Like there's a lot of that that we really have to begin um, to kind of examine because as you mentioned before, um, capitalism, racism, the patriarchy, all of that is is really what, um, you know, our country for sure. But a lot of this work has also been steeped in. Grounded in. Yeah. And grounded in. And so how do we begin to question and undo that so that we can actually achieve the equity, right? And bring ourselves in community um, with those that we hope to serve. And so I think that's the what's next, right? And so I think the pandemic really helped um, for us put that in focus that our work has always been citizen-led. It's always been people-focused, right? And so how do we do more of that and then help those organizations do more of that as well? Yeah. Well, and I think that that's inherently disruptive. Go ahead, Rick. No, I was just going to say, and a, a very uh, practical and real example of what Sarita was speaking to uh, is some work that we are currently doing uh, in a neighborhood that is uh, called the Eddie Robinson Historic District. And Eddie Robinson was the longtime football coach at Grambling uh, State University, historically black college uh, in North Louisiana. But he grew up in this neighborhood in Baton Rouge. Uh, and it, it is a historically significant. Uh, it has uh, the Lincoln Hotel, which was the only hotel that for many years uh, during segregation that black folks could stay in uh, when they came to Baton Rouge. Uh, the only black theater is a few blocks uh, away from that. And a number of other uh, historically and culturally significant spaces are, are, are in this community. Uh, and there's a wonderfully talented young brother who has started to do some development work, some redevelopment work in the community. And so we came alongside him and asked the question, you know, what's critical to really creating a thriving community that does not have as a byproduct the mass displacement of people who have lived yes, here yes. for a long time? Uh, and, and so we've started convening stakeholders. We started... Uh, uh, having conversations about about and with community about how their voice gets centered uh, in this, but but we've identified you know a, a hundred year old church that's located here, uh, the oldest black private social club, and the oh, oldest black the oldest black funeral home, uh, a, a historically significant barber shop. These are not the traditional actors that people bring to the table 
to talk about the redevelopment of a community. Mm. Uh, the, 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 the oldest black high school in Baton Rouge, the Alumni Association, all of these are people along with our Arts Council and our Downtown Development District, our Community Redevelopment Authority. Uh, we, we, we have brought all of these people uh, into the same space to talk about how do we create this thriving cultural and, uh, and, and, and historical and, and entertainment space that also values and respects the yes. people who have lived here uh, through it all and, their and allows and their them history. to all of that, all of that. And so that's a practical that. example of, of, of how we see and live out the words we say uh, on a daily basis. Well, I, I love that, too, because that was going to be my next question, but you already answered it, like how transformative it is to ground, do development differently, to ground it in the histories and stories of the people that have lived there. So we're not recolonizing land that has been colonized, right? So we're not going in a community and act like there wasn't a people or a place or history or richness in a culture that was there. We're actually saying who lives here? What are their stories? What has been the stories? How do we highlight that? How do we incorporate that into our collective future? I wrote a piece last year for, for this project where we really talk about how do we have neighborhoods rooted in black and brown history and culture around uh, ownership, around storytelling, and around art as an economic development as tools to bring those stories to light. So I love y'all doing that and give us the name of that project again Ray. it is the eddie robinson historic district we will be following that that sounds lovely mm -hmm. um we gotta go here quickly but i have uh, one question for you all so i'm asking everybody i interview who are who is doing very transformative work in their communities is how do they maintain their own sense of self how do you work towards your own continued liberation, whatever that means for you, um, and to, to be disruptive of your own thoughts or biases and ways of being. So the, the question is, what do you do? Is there a practice? Is there a resource? Um, what do you do to maintain yourself and make sure you're, you're continually growing and evolving on your road to greater equity, justice, and in y'all's case, the urban transformation that y'all involved in? Such a good question. And, and for me, um, it, it always starts with like, uh, checking self, examining self, right? And so, um, as I said, um, um, well-meaning people often enter into this space with perfect intentions, but being well-meaning doesn't make us exempt from being problematic. And so when oh, we are not that constantly, <laughs> uh, when we're not constantly, um, checking and examining ourselves and and surrounding ourselves with people who who will do that for us we mm -hmm. run the of becoming the very thing that we stand against right Ooh, and yeah. so how do we for me it's about really checking my motivations and asking myself what is driving this decision every single choice um that we make when we show up in communities um we, we have to kind of examine that, right? And so an example of that is 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 when we show up in communities, we have a partnership where, where we talked a lot about, um, we talk about food equity, 
Um, and one of the questions that one of the facilitators asked was, what was the last food item you tried? And we all went around the room and we talked about all of these like delicacies that we had tried. And most of us didn't like them. Right. And she said, and so now imagine when you go into communities where there's maybe food, um, food deserts and you are trying to push for someone to try a new food because you think they should be trying that new food. Right. And so constantly being mindful of how we show up in spaces is the first one. And then um, the second one is, is one is local and one is national. I have a friend who is also a DEI consultant. And when I tell you there is not a single statement that rolls out of my mouth that she doesn't say, hey, sis, where's that coming from? That sounds Ooh. like patriarchy if I ever heard, you know what Come I mean? Come on now, yeah. <laughs> Having someone who can always just kind of help point that out. And then on the national level, um, I try to pay attention to anything that Dr. Tracy McMillan Cotton is talking about. Oh, come on. She used to live in Richmond. Used to work at Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Um, because there's it's, it's guaranteed to have a different perspective for how we should we we can look at some of these things um in, in popular culture that just seem harmless, right? And so, you know, anything from from how we talk about TV shows to to, you know, uh, the presidential debate. And so just always surrounding myself with people who help me to mm, say critical thinking. Yeah, I love that. All right, Raymond, we have a couple more minutes. Take us home. What are your liberatory practice or sustaining practices? So for me, it is deeply rooted in the belief that the uh, the, the, the scriptures that I have been uh, associated with for a large part of my life are grounded in truth when they say that there is a time and a season for everything. And so being sensitive to what time and what season do I find myself in and what is the appropriate uh, behavior, what is the appropriate uh, act or actions that are consistent with that season in my life. I am keenly aware that uh, I am, if not already, I am fastly becoming an elder in my community. And with that comes an obligation. Uh, and, and so how am I living uh, that out? Am I uh, being intentional about creating pathways more than I am protecting my place uh, in things? Uh, this, this, this shifting of this notion of legacy from being about things that have my name attached to them to things that live on and have impact long after I am around uh, is what helps me uh, at this point in time. And so recognizing the change in the time and, and the seasons and asking myself, my, my daily tweet, our earliest tweet five days a week, uh, is what will you do today that will matter 20 years from now? Mm. And I want to wake up every day trying to answer that question. I love that. And that's a wonderful way to end. What will you do today that will matter 20 years from now? Thank you so much for joining me on the Intersection podcast, Sharita and Raymond. Um, if you're listening in, we have been spending a couple minutes talking with the leaders of Metromorphosis down in Baton Rouge, Sharita Harrison and Raymond Jepson. Thank y'all so much for joining me. 
listeners, check out metromorphosis.net. These are two to follow. I love the highlight, the intergenerational co-leadership as a disruptive model, particularly in the nonprofit arena as we go forward. I love their work about transforming urban communities from within people to watch or organization to watch and definitely to learn from. So thank y'all. And we will see y'all in the next episode of The Intersection and uh, a podcast of the Richmond Racial Equity Essays. Thank you.